Well, it's always my great pleasure to be able to teach here. It's been some time, and so I'm very excited, and I would also like to be the first of our intermittent guest preachers to say, I wish I had more chapters to teach than just the six that I have. With that being said, in the process of studying, when you're studying to teach six chapters, uh, you just don't want to leave anything on the cutting room floor. Uh, and, but the reality is, even if I just read through this section, it would take 30 minutes of our time. So I pray and hope that you have read through this section coming into this. And if you have not, that this sermon will also serve you as you read it later on. In the bulletin, you'll see that we've got a little map at the bottom right side. This is new. We don't always do this. I found this to be a little bit helpful. I hope it'll help you guys to kind of see the direction of the story. The outline that we're going to go from today is going to be based off of where we are geographically. And I want to point out a little bit of uh, some of the significance of the geography that's mentioned in the text. And so we'll flow with the story where we're at. And then I also put a short little reference guide at the bottom right side, uh, or in the center of the page, to tell you who some of these people are, to keep our names straight. So I'll introduce people, but they're going to come back later in the story. So we just want to have a good idea of who we're talking about. All right, without further ado, let me pray so we can begin our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, you are gracious to us in ways that we could never fathom. The way that you have woven your story to exalt your Son, the way that history has been staged for your Son to receive all the glory, for him to solve all the problems, Lord, the way that even as we read the story, we feel the pain, we feel the need, we feel the stress of what seems like the promises of God possibly slipping through our fingers. And all the while, Lord, we see that you are resolved to keep your word. You're resolved to save. Lord, I pray that as we go through your word, you would be glorified and your son would be honored. Amen. The question for this sermon is, will the house of David fail? Will the house of David fail? Having gone through 1 Samuel, we're set up seeing David and Saul, even literarily, are foils of one another, meaning they're the opposites. We learn a lot about what David should be by observing what Saul is not. And so by the time David comes to the stage, we're excited. Things are good. The way that the story is written is that there's victory and there's victory and David is growing stronger and stronger and the people are with him no matter what he does and that God is raising him up. And then last week, we have a turn in the story that my section today begs the question, will the house of David be able to push through? Will it persevere or will it fall under the consequence of the sin that David commits with Bathsheba. Open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12 just to get a glimpse of where we are coming from last week. And as you're opening to 2 Samuel chapter 12, I would remind you, 2 Samuel 7, you will not understand the flow of redemptive history, especially in its relationship to the king 
and why David is such an important name even long after his death if you don't get a grip on 2 Samuel 7. That's when God takes David and his household and says that I will make an offspring come from you that will sit on the throne forever. I will do that. And we'll see that that promise alone carries the Davidic household through all of these trials, all of these things that many other households fall along the way. And that's why Matthew starts off telling us why this Jesus is a legitimate descendant of David, and Romans starts the same, and Mary is told that the God Most High is going to put a son in you who is going to be sitting on the throne of his father David. And David becomes a name in the prophets that becomes synonymous with the new Messiah and all these things. So you need to get a grip of 2 Samuel 7. But another line that follows through the household of David is 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 10, God tells David after his sin with Bathsheba that the sword shall never depart from his house. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And we are sitting here in Vista, testimony to the fact that the shame that was brought upon the house of David by his sin is still known. What happens immediately after this curse to David? Well, his oldest son, Amnon, disgraces his sister Tamar. And we start to see the consequences of David's sin. In the book of Leviticus, there is very specific rules for what happens if you are guilty of violating this specific rule, this specific law. If you lie with your sister, even your half-sister, if Amnon would try to plea that, you are to be put to death. He says in Leviticus 20, verse 17, he shall bear his iniquity. But Amnon is not punished by his father David, by the king, who is supposed to administer justice and righteousness. And Absalom, his other son, waits two years and plots and kills his brother. Now, we're not on the side of Absalom for what he did. But we still need to observe that this whole passage, even though these characters are kind of slippery and it's hard to be like, is this guy right? Is he wrong? Is he doing what he's supposed to? Is he not? Where it's not black and white, it's at least dark gray for most of our characters through this. Absalom starts to kind of see his father as a weak man who uh, he has reason to be upset with. Absalom kills Amnon, and just like David didn't punish Amnon, he doesn't punish Absalom. Absalom is kind of on like a house arrest situation. He's eventually brought back into Jerusalem, but David says he's not to come to the presence of the king. And that's not just the silent treatment, right? That's, a, that's an act of, you know, kind of like we see corruption and justice where someone doesn't get a verdict because they never get a court date. And eventually Absalom is fed up with this. He says, if I'm guilty, just say it. And David will end up receiving Absalom. He'll take him off of house arrest. But again, the reality is Absalom is a murderer, right? And could he make his case under Deuteronomic law that he enforced the law? Maybe, but you're not the king. 
right? And so David's inaction leads to kind of a domino effect in his family, and we're seeing these curses that are against the family of David also bearing fruit. So that brings us to this section. David has received his son back at the very end of chapter 14. We're told that Absalom has a daughter, and he names his daughter Tamar in verse 27, and she's very beautiful, right? Why is there this note in the text that he names his daughter after his sister, right? What it tells you is that Absalom has not forgotten. Absalom still remembers his father's inaction, and so when the king kisses Absalom and receives him back, Absalom shows up like he's the king now. Listen to the way it says he comes back to Jerusalem. This is verse 1 of chapter 15. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Right? This is what kings do. And if, you, uh, if you've been to Israel before, you'll know that having a chariot in Jerusalem isn't even a tremendously helpful thing to have because the terrain doesn't really reward chariots. It's all pretty mountainous and rocky. So why would you show up with a chariot? It's a status thing. That's what kings have. It's making a statement. Uh, we'll see this later on. David will have another son, when he's very old, try to take the throne from Solomon, and he'll do the same thing. He'll get chariots and horses and men. And if we remember back to our law about the way that the kings in Israel are supposed to be different than the kings of the world, Deuteronomy 17, they are not to multiply gold and wives and horses, right? And so we're instantly seeing this guy is doing a kingly thing, but not a God's kingly thing. It's not God's king. It's like the nation's. Now, as we go through and look at these different characters and these different people, I want to keep in mind that we're almost evaluating the king and evaluating the covenant. We're evaluating the king, we're evaluating the covenant. We have now seen that there's a tension. God has made an unconditional promise to his servant David and his household, but now there's this tension of the consequence of his sin, and we're seeing the fruit of that. Does the covenant stand? Will it stand? And so as Absalom comes into Jerusalem, David is going to flee, and we're going to get what you would say is a recapitulation of the Saul narrative. David, though he's king, will become a wanderer in the wilderness again. And we'll see that the behavior of David is less kingly than it was when David wasn't actually acting king. David was more kingly before he was king than we'll see him here. So how does Absalom even get ground for this rebellion that he's going to stage against his father? Well, what he does is he goes into the city gates of Jerusalem, and the city gates are not just the entry to the city, but they would be where people would come for counsel and for disputes. There would be some seats, kind of like these pews in there, and you would decide, and there would be someone and judges and, you know, elders in town that are going to decide disputes. And what Absalom does is when people come into town to talk to David— he intercepts them. He says, hey, what tribe are you from? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, what's your dispute? And they say, oh, this, you know, here's this problem. And he's like, you know what? You're good and you're right. If only there was someone designated by the king to hear your problem, but there's not. And if I was king in Israel, there'd be justice. And he does this for years. This pattern, everyone he meets, you're right. I would be on your side. And the king doesn't have anyone to hear your problems. Right? It's very easy. It's kind of like in American politics. It's very easy to be the party that can just say, if only I had the power. 
right? That's what Absalom is doing to everyone that comes to Jerusalem. And eventually Absalom leaves to Hebron. Now, if we remember, Hebron is the old capital city of Israel. Before Jerusalem, this is the capital. This is where David rules for seven years. And so he goes down to Hebron and he tells his father that he has made an oath and that this oath he needs to keep. And so he's going to go down to Hebron and uh, perform this vow that he made to God that he said, if I ever leave Gesher and come back to Jerusalem, then I'm going to go to Hebron. I'm going to sacrifice to God. Uh, There's no reason to believe that Absalom actually made this oath because we see that it's part of a political coup against his father. He goes down to Hebron. He invites 200 people, not telling them why they're coming. 200 influential people in Jerusalem. And then he tells them, here's the plan. When the trumpet blows, you're going to yell, Absalom is king in Hebron. And so he's bringing these people down. And what's heartbreaking, in verse 9, David says to Absalom, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, and that will actually be the last words of David to his son, go in peace. And the next time that there's any interaction between David's men and Absalom's men, it will be for war. But David believes his son, he lets him go, and it says that these people, they go in their innocence. They don't know what was going to happen. And I want to pay attention to this last phrase in this section in verse 12. This verse 12, halfway through, it says that the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This is a reversal of the language that we've seen about David up to this point. This language of growing stronger has been attributed to God's work in the household of David. In 2 Samuel 3, 1, it says that David's house grew stronger and stronger against the house of Saul. In 3.36, it says, everything that the king did pleased the people. When the people anoint David king in Hebron, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, behold, we are your bone and flesh. And in verse 10, it says that David became greater and greater. And then the very high point of the life of David in his reign is chapter 8, his political high point. It's not random that it's right after chapter 7 that we're told about all the political and military success of David. And he says twice that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And now we're being told that the nation is growing strong with Absalom and the conspiracy is strong. And so when David is told about this, he flees. And now I want to introduce to you some characters that are going to come back. Uh, Ellie and I, if you know Ellie over there, my girlfriend, or John would say my friend, John Stead, uh, Ellie and I started watching Downton Abbey recently. And one thing I'm impressed about in that show is that they make me care about the characters even when I don't remember their names yet. I have to keep asking, who's that? What's that guy's name? And even if you don't remember all these characters' names, I want you to care about them. I want you to see how they interact with David and what that tells us about David's rule and his kingship. So we meet this guy, Ahithophel, one of the counselors that used to work for David. 
And this guy's a big deal in Israel. If Ahithophel says something, the, the Bible says later on in this section, it says that he, his words are as if you consulted the word of God. So if Ahithophel tells the king, this is what we're going to do, everyone in Israel is kind of like, this is the plan. And this guy is now working for Absalom. This guy's working for Absalom. So as David flees in verse 13, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. So David, as acting king in the capital city, hears that there's a rebellion, and he says, we need to go. Uh, Different people fall on different sides of whether or not this is something we should critique about David. Should we critique this fleeing? It's not that it doesn't make sense. If you hear that most of Israel is against you, that's all fine and good. And I'll be honest that I tend to take a negative view of David in general in this whole section. And part of that comes from the fact that this whole section is kind of a referendum on David. And you see God doing justice where David should do justice. And you also do not see any of these stories in the book of Chronicles which the purpose of the book of Chronicles is to highlight the Davidic kingdom and to make sure you know that these promises still stand. And so it's not a bait and switch that they don't include these stories, but you know by the author's intent, if David is supposed to look good in these stories, he would include them in Chronicles, the author of Chronicles, and it's not included. And so I also tend to look at the first time that we really see David doing a kingly thing. He is fighting insurmountable odds. David and Goliath is literally a metaphor in society for the little guy looking at the big guy and not being afraid. And so I would say that David's fleeing from Jerusalem doesn't reflect great on David. It doesn't reflect great on his perspective. We also don't see David inquire of God as to what he should do, which we see repeatedly in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel up until this point. We see positively people inquiring God what they should do, but he does not. And so David flees, he takes his servants, he leaves the ten concubines at home to keep the home, and we're introduced to this man named Etai the Gittite. If you look down at verse 18, we have these different characters that are mentioned. It says that his servants pass by him as they're fleeing Jerusalem, and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And so David still has faithful uh, Philistine followers that are with him. These Gittites of Gath, the same place that Goliath is from, are still faithful to David. And Etai, the Gittite, David says, why would you go with us? You have nothing to gain going with us. I do not know where we're going. And I love this confession of Etai, what he says to his king, when David tells Etai, stay with the king talking about Absalom. David says, stay with the king, and in a way, Etai says, I intend to by going with you. In verse 21, Etai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And so you have this faithful confession of the man Etai to David, this Gentile who's loyal to the king. And that's another one of these things that comes out in this passage is that 
the people that should be noble aren't really, and the Gentiles that you shouldn't expect it from are. Right? And Etai is loyal to David. In verse 23, it says, All the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. I won't dive into it too deeply, but the brook Kidron is not mentioned that many times. But it is mentioned when Jesus, in the night that he's going to be betrayed, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to face his enemies and to persevere through his temptation. And it says specifically in John 18 that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. And that he says, I am the Christ that you're looking for. I am the one. I am the man that you're looking for. And so the Kidron becomes a place that in the Old Testament is associated with fleeing. It's associated with running away. The Kidron Valley is this little valley just east of Jerusalem itself that separates the city from the Mount of Olives. And so now we're going to watch David flee. We're going to watch him go up the Mount of Olives, and we're going to meet these other characters. As David is leaving the city in verse 24, Abiathar and Zadok, the priests, come to him with the Levites, bringing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark until the people had all passed out of the city. And what David tells them is, bring the Ark back into the city. If God wants to bring me back, he can. Right? If God wants to bring me back, he can. I don't think we can really fault David on not bringing the Ark with him. I think that is the right view. We've seen Israel pay the price when they try to treat the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm in battle. And I think David is saying, no, the Ark should stay where we brought it. It should stay where God had it. And if he wants to bring me back, he can. He says, but you guys, Zadok and Abiathar, you guys should stay in Jerusalem and be my ears on the ground. I'll wait for word from you guys. You're going to be my spies. And so we see the beginning of David building up his little spy rink within the city itself. And so David goes up the Mount of Olives, and it says he's weeping, verse, 20, or verse 30. He's weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they were weeping as they went. And this is going to be the first time that we actually see David pray in this whole section and the only time that we see him pray in this whole section. David hears that Ahithophel, that counselor that used to be his, that everyone respected, is in league with Absalom. And he prays, Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And when David was coming up to the summit of the Mount of Olives where God was worshipped, there's someone we meet again, a new face named Hushai, Hushai the Archite. You know, we really don't know much about him except that he keeps being called David's friend. David's friend. And indeed, Hushai is a faithful friend to David. And finally, the story brings us from the Mount of Olives beyond the summit, beyond the summit. And what we're going to see is that in the geography of this whole section, moving east in the Bible, uh, there's association with that. East of Eden, 
is not a good direction to be. The promised land is set up as the place you want to be. The bad things come from the east. You guys came from the east in your wilderness wanderings to be in this promised land. And so the idea that David is moving further and further away from the capital and the places that are mentioned, that eventually he'll come to the Jordan, is not good for your king. You don't want your king at the very water that God split to bring you into the land and said, when you come here, you are to remember that God did that. You don't want your king fleeing that direction. And that's what we see him do. He passes on beyond the summit in chapter 16. And Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. Let's rewind the clock a little bit. There's this guy named Saul, and he's the king. And he has a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David are best friends. And eventually David gets word that Saul and Jonathan were both killed, and he mourns. And it crosses his mind later on that maybe there's someone still of the house of Jonathan that I can bless. And he hears that he has a son named Mephibosheth who's lame in his feet because the day that he found out that Jonathan and Saul had died, his nurse dropped him as a young boy. And so you have this, this man that would not have a lot of prospects in society, but David is kind to Mephibosheth. And he says, he always has a seat at my table. And Ziba, you are a servant of Saul. You're going to be a servant to Mephibosheth for the rest of his life. You and all your family are going to serve him. You're going to work the land on his behalf, and he can eat every meal with the king. And so Ziba, the servant, comes to David with a bunch of food and donkeys to supply the men as they flee. And Ziba tells King David that Mephibosheth has betrayed him. He says, today the house of Israel, this is apparently a quote from Mephibosheth himself, today the house of Israel will give back to me the kingdom of my father. So Ziba comes to the king as he's fleeing, and he brings him a bunch of presents, brings him a picnic, and he says, yeah, and my master Mephibosheth, he's betrayed you. And so David says, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours, Ziba. It's all yours. The king had the right to do this. He reallocates all the wealth that was given to Mephibosheth, and he says it is now the servant Ziba's. If you've read the story, you'll know that's not the, really what happened, but we'll get there. Just let that sit in your mind. David has heard that his friend has betrayed him. So we continue on. We have this young man who apparently betrayed him, and then we come to this man named Shimei in verse 5 of chapter 16. Shimei is a no-good cursor of David. He curses David as he leaves, and he throws rocks at all the people, and he kicks up dust, and David is pretty discouraged at this point. Shimei says in verse 7, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. There's this mixed message from Shimei that even as the reader, we're kind of left with... Um, is that right? Is David being cursed because of his 
dealings with the house of Saul? And we would say, well, no, David was above reproach when it came to dealing with the house of Saul. Saul destroyed himself. David had every opportunity to do it, but he didn't. David, we would argue, even had right to do it, and he didn't. But David does sense some truth in what Shimei is saying. Because when David's commander, one of the commanders of his army, Abishai, brother of Joab, when he hears this, he says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over there and take his head off. He's like, people without heads are way quieter. Let me silence this fool who curses the king. And David basically says, well, maybe God told him to. Who are we to tell him to stop if God told him to curse David? Again, some people fall on another side of this. I don't think this is a high point in the mind of David. I don't think that David would allow someone to say that about Saul. And it wouldn't be because Saul was a good guy. It'd be because we used to see David with a reverence for what it means to be the king. Right? What happens when someone tries to take credit for killing Saul and be like, I did it, David. You know what the reward for their news was? David killed them. When Ishbosheth, who is another son of Saul, is set up as a king against David, even when he is unjustly killed, the messengers come to him to bring his head and see, like, we killed the rebel. And David said, do you know what I did to the guy that talked about killing Saul? And he killed them too. But now David's king, and you have this guy cursing David and speaking out against him, and David says, well, maybe he's right. Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Right? David goes from maybe the Lord told him to, to the Lord told him to leave him alone. Uh, Abishai, this one who says, let's cut his head off, this dog, is uh, a son of Zeruiah, which is one of David's brothers. And so this is his nephew, who is a, a general. And David has already said earlier on in the book, these men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. Because Joab is the one who kills Abner, and you have all these problems with this specific household being very violent. But what I will say is that every time you see maybe Joab going too far, as we will see, uh, you also have this concern that... Uh, David's not doing what he's supposed to, what he should do. So let's, let's continue on. We've met these characters. We've met these people. We're going to move faster through this next section where David is in the wilderness and Absalom is in Jerusalem. So Hushai, his friend, the guy that's called the friend of David, pledges himself to David. And then Ahithophel, the counselor, the one who is renowned, gives counsel to Absalom. And what he says is, Absalom, take your father's concubines and make yourself a stench to your father and you will strengthen the people who are with you. This is not good advice in a godly sense, but in a pagan kingly sense, this is what they would do. Take the wives, take the concubines of the old guy and show that you're in charge. And so Absalom does this. And we're reminded that God said that he is going to take the wives of David and give them to his enemy in the sight of all Israel. And this is exactly what happens. 
Hushai's set there. So Ahithophel gives his counsel. He says, take the wives of your father, and then he gives them counsel. We're going to go get David tonight, right? This is actually good advice, tactically speaking. He says, we're going to go get him. Your father uh, is going to be, you know, hiding, but we're going to go get just him, right? That's the advice. It's good advice. We're going to only kill David. We're going to get him tonight with a small band of people. This is Ahithophel's legendary advice. And Absalom's like, that's great advice, but is there anyone else? And who was left there to give advice? Hushai. And Hushai's job? Frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. So Hushai says, I've got another plan. And Absalom kind of falls susceptible to this epic, like hyped up speech about what he's going to do. Because he says, if you go get David tonight, David's a mighty man. He's a warrior. His men are mighty. All of Israel knows this. And they're going to get scared and you're going to lose. That's what's going to happen. And so he says, instead, let's gather all of Israel together. We're going to go kill everybody. And if they go and hide in a city, we're going to drag the whole city down with ropes. This plan takes a lot longer to make work than go chase David tonight. Why would Hushai give this advice? To buy David some time. All right, to buy David some time. And so Hushai goes to tell David that he's given the advice to take longer to go get all of Israel to have this big war, but David or Hushai doesn't know what Absalom's going to choose. So where does Hushai go? He runs to spread the word, to go tell David. Tell David Ahithophel might be, be listened to. They might go chase you down tonight and try to kill you. And so David flees across the Jordan with his people, and David runs away. David is across the Jordan. He goes to a city to hide. And we'll bring this to verse 22 of chapter 17. David has gotten news to flee, and David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So they end up taking Hushai's advice, and this renowned counselor of Israel, Ahithophel, does not take it well, to say the least. He hangs himself. It says that he goes home, and he gets his house in order, and he hangs himself. Now, to say that he set his house in order is not to say that he made the bed and swept. It is to say that he got his inheritance and he got his home in order. This is a premeditated suicide. And this won't be the only story of someone being hanged in this section. David flees, but Absalom follows the advice of Hushai, and he brings a mighty army out to fight David. In verse 27 of chapter 17, David is blessed by these Gentile, or not Gentile, sorry, these leaders of these nations beyond the Jordan, these different cities, and he is given food, beds, basins, earthen vessels, all these things. And David is blessed, even though he's not acting actively as a mighty king. Why is David blessed by these people bringing him food, even though he's not obeying? The blessing of a lot of food in the land of Israel is connected to obeying the law. So why is he being blessed? And I would say that this shows you exactly how serious God is about this promise that he made to David. 
exactly how serious he is about the promise that he made to David. Now, the promise was unconditional. He's being blessed in spite of not deserving it. He's being ministered to in the wilderness. Look at the very end of verse 29 of chapter 17, the last verse, the last section of the verse. It says that the people were hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. The people were hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. When Jesus goes out in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, why does he go to the wilderness? Because in your Bible, geography has memory. The wilderness is where you are tested. Why does he not eat? Why does he fast for those 40 days? Because he's a better Adam. He's a better Israel. He's a better David. Adam had the garden at his disposal. Israel was fed from heaven. David was ministered to by kings. Jesus was hungry. He was hungry, and Satan came to tempt him. We start to get this sense of what our king needs to be, and our king needs to be God. After he is ministered to by these kings in chapter 18, David brings his men together. He sets three camps of men over, or three armies, one-third under Joab, one-third under Abishai, and one-third under Etai. And he sends his men out, and I want you to look at verse 9. David told his people to be gentle to Absalom. Is this a good command? It sounds like a good command from a father, but not from a king. Absalom has time and time again earned the death penalty from the king, but David says, be gentle to my son. But verse 9 says, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. There is no happen to when God has made divine appointments. It's like in the book of Ruth when it says that Ruth happened to glean in the field of Boaz. It's not a happen to. Right? God is a, a unfortunately silent name in this section that we've been going through. We don't know what God's doing or what he's saying. But then you have moments like this where you know exactly what God's doing. It says that Absalom happened to meet the servants of David and he was riding his mule. And if you remember the story, he rides under a great oak and Absalom's beautiful hair gets caught in the tree. And it says that he was suspended between heaven and earth by his hair hanged in a tree, right? What an image. It even makes mention in this battle that the forest killed more people than the fighting. And I think you read that, and we might want to stop and say, in what scenario is a forest so dangerous that against fighting men that later we'll hear some of them have killed hundreds of people on, them, on their own, in what world is the forest killing more people? in a world where God is acting as king. When David's not fighting, when David says, be gentle to Absalom, God says, no. God kills Absalom. And how do we know that's obvious? The way that Absalom died is not random. Absalom is hung in a tree. And it says that Joab comes and runs him through with javelins and then calls ten more of his guys to come beat him to death, and they bury him the same day in a pit in the forest. And why all this information? In Deuteronomy 21, 22, God says, when someone does something deserving of death under the law and you hang him in a tree, 
you shall bury him the same day, because cursed by God is the man that hangs in a tree. I don't think Joab knew that he was enacting the law against, you know, Absalom intentionally. I think God knew that he was, though. And I think that the writer of Samuel knows exactly why he wrote it the way he did, to say that a tree suspended him between heaven and earth and that he was buried the same day is to say that when David gave the command, be gentle to Absalom, God upheld his law against him. And so you see another example where David is probably not behaving as he ought to. Now, after Absalom is dead, uh, you don't want to be the bearer of bad news. You don't want to be the guy to say that unless you're Ahimaaz. For some reason, this is the son of the priest who has left home, and he really insists, the son of Zadok really insists on running and being the messenger to David that the battle was won. And Joab says, you probably don't want to do that. Do it another day, because today the king's son is dead. You don't want to be the bearer of that news. And he says, come what may, I want to do it. So Joab sent another runner already to de deliver the news. But Ahimaaz says, I'll go too. And he actually outruns the other runner. And so David is sitting waiting for news, and he sees someone running up and he says, this is a good man, this is Ahimaaz, this is a good man with good news. And Ahimaaz comes to David, and he says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered you up from the men who raised up their hand against you, my Lord the King. And what does King David say? Is it well, verse 29 of chapter 18, is it well with the young man Absalom? What does David care about? He doesn't care that the victory was won. He wants to know about Absalom. And Ahimaaz, who knows for certain that Absalom is dead and was even told by Joab, that's why you don't want to bring the news. When he is asked this, he says, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what happened. I saw people were talking, but I'm not sure about that. Right? He gets cold feet. He doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news. And so David says, okay, wait here. And then the Cushite shows up. And brings good news. He says, uh, you know, the victory is won. This is, you know, the gospel of the day, the good news. The victory is won. And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? Verse 32. And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Obviously, this guy does not know that David did not want his son killed. And so David, we almost expect him to lash out and kill him, but David mourns and weeps. David laments the death of his son. He says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. And this prompts all the people to mourn on a day that should have been victory. All the people weep and mourn because the king is mourning. Joab rebukes David for mourning. Now, again, we don't want to say we can't empathize with David as a father lamenting the death of his son. Of course we can. But I would say, if God is the one who enacts justice against someone that you want to protect, as the king, there's a particular duty to not mourn justice. 
to not mourn justice. And so Joab comes to rebuke David, but even Joab is not squeaky clean. Joab is a slippery character at best, an enemy at times. And Joab came into the house of the king in verse 5 of chapter 19. He says, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Verse 6, Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For if you... Or for today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Right? Joab is saying, this is what the people are going to think. And it's going to be worse for you than the rebellion of Absalom if you do not pull it together, David. And so David returns to the gate of the city, but not in Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem. David will call the elders. He'll write letters to the elders of Jerusalem. They actually haven't welcomed him back as king. It takes time in Israel for the word to spread that the king uh, that we had, Absalom, is dead. Why don't we welcome David back to the throne? And so eventually they do. They call him back. And on his way back, just like on his way out, he meets all these characters. On the way back, they all show up again. And what we learn is that Shimei, the guy who was cursing David, he comes out and he says, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Please forgive me. And David does pardon him, at least for now. Ultimately, he tells his son Solomon, hey, deal with that guy Shimei. I should have killed him. But he pardons him. And then you have Ziba, or Mephibosheth, the lame one. He shows up, and it's, been, it's clear that he's been mourning since the day that David left Jerusalem. He's unkept. His hair's all messed up. And David says, why didn't you go with me the day that I left? And he says, my servant tricked me. Ziba lied. And so does David say, get Ziba over here and kill him? David's like, uh, split the land 50-50. Right? I think David, part of him is probably like, I don't even know who fully to believe in this. And so you end up seeing David having to deal with these people. He honors the people that honored him and brought him food. He forgives Shimei, kind of. He makes a middle ground with, with Ziba and with Mephibosheth. And in a sentence, I will summarize chapter 20 so that we can get to our conclusion. Chapter 20, on David's way back, this guy rebels named Sheba. And he says, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And is this worthless man, that's what he's called, this worthless man, I, I would like to not be recorded later on in history as a worthless man. But Sheba is, and he stages a short rebellion. He gets all the people together. Joab chases him down to a city, and they start sieging the city. And this wise woman comes out and says, what is going on? Why are you destroying this heritage of Israel? This is an old city. We're peaceful. And Joab says, you have a traitor in there. And she says, give me a moment. And she talks to the city, and Sheba's head comes flying over the wall. Right? She says, we can work this out. We can negotiate. And so they come back. And what I want to highlight in verse 23, verse 23, this would probably be a section that we would read quite quick, quickly in our daily 
devotional, it says, Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jerahite, was also David's priest. What is significant about that section? Well, we have just finished a mixed bag of David's failures. Some of his failures are moral. Some of his failures are just could have done better, David. Some of his failures are, well, you couldn't even really know that without prior information. How could you know that someone was lying to you? But at the end of the day, they're failures that have consequences. And it ends with a summary of who's all in charge in David's kingdom. And this is actually a literary textual clue. All right? Hold your finger here at the end of 20 and flip to chapter 8 of the same book. 2 Samuel chapter 8. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, God has made his promise to David. David has prayed a mighty prayer where he says, Lord God, you are God, your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. And then David takes over the Philistines and the Moabites and Zobah and the Syrians and Hamath, and he takes all their gold and he dedicates it to God. And twice in this chapter it says, you can look at the verse 14, end of verse 14 for an example, twice it says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And then it concludes that section saying, David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahilud, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar. Why would the text connect you with the same little list of who's in charge of what after the great successes of David and the great failures of David? You'll realize the phrase that's not in the second one is this phrase that says that David administered justice and equity to all his people and that he had success wherever he went. But at the end of David's failures, at the end, we still see the same statement of what God did for David. He reestablished him with the, these people in office, no matter what happened, even when he didn't administer justice. And if you're the king, there's great consequence for the people when you fail to administer justice. But the promise that God made to David was not conditional. David messes up worse than Saul in many situations. What's the difference between the two of them? David's actually regenerate. David's chosen of God. God has made a promise to him that he will not revoke. The promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7 will stand throughout all of David's children. Even when David lacks prayer and lacks wisdom and lacks accountability and justice and initiative, his family will be king, which is actually a scary thought. Right? A job where you can't be fired from is a scary job. It's scary to have that person above you, right? which is exactly why this section just demands and cries out for the right king. If a son of David is going to be king no matter what, we want the right one. We want the king who's going to administer justice and equity and who's going to do right by his people and the implicit idea in this section is that only God can be king. 
Only God can bear the weight of justice necessary to be the king. This is why in our scripture reading, we read from Ezekiel chapter 34, or in our call to worship, Ezekiel chapter 34, God is tired of the leaders of Israel. He's tired of the bad shepherds. He's tired of the priesthood. And he says in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And then he says, I will put a shepherd over Israel, one shepherd, even David, my servant. So God says, I'm going to be their shepherd. David's going to be their shepherd. And there's only going to be one. Right? We get this Old Testament expectation that only God can be the king. Isaiah chapter 9, this is our Christmas passage. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. In the beginning of the gospel of Luke, when Mary is told that she will have a son, he's described this way. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. There will be no end. We need the righteous, just king. The king who does not need to judge by what he sees or by what he hears. As Isaiah says in chapter 11, this one will have the Spirit of God upon him in equity and justice and righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your King, your Son. Lord, I thank you even for the way that you have miraculously instilled in us through your Word a sense for our need of the King. We read through these stories and we know that all the while we are learning what we're not and what you can only be on our behalf. Thank you that your son knows perfectly all the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No one has to tell him what's in the heart of man. Lord, in this king, when he forgives, he does it with justice. That you maintain that you are just and the justifier of us. Even though we would stand condemned and wicked, we are brought into the wealth and the blessing of your Son by grace. Thank you, Lord, for your Son. Amen.